the hype train is and we're like oh my god this is terrible we're so good can we just stop that crap Ireland could win the World Cup let's be honest oh Shane could why are we so afraid of this OTB AM live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app Okay, the Super Bowl takes place on Sunday evening, early Monday, our time. Um, and to help talk about this and put it in some context, given that it's the very first one in the post-Tom Brady era, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Jeff Benedict, who's the New York Times best-selling author of The Dynasty, the definitive inside story of the New England Patriots. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing well. It's good to be back with you. Um, I, look, I, we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the... Um, how the uh, offensive line of the Philadelphia Eagles are going to stand up against the internal pass rush of the Chiefs. But I did want to talk to you about the the wider context of a Super Bowl in the post-Brady era. It's very, very quickly. Um, it's, a, it's a completely different landscape now that Tom Brady has gone. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Tom's departure is like, I think he was the last of the great traditional pocket-passing quarterbacks in the history of the NFL, you know, and I'm talking about the tradition of, you know, Johnny Unitas and Joe Namath and John Elway and Dan Marino and um, obviously Joe Montana, Peyton Manning. Uh, Tom is the last of those kinds of quarterbacks. And I think we're the NFL, the National Football League is now in a new era. Uh, The quarterback is a very different position today. Um, Most of the, the most successful quarterbacks in the league uh, have to have the ability to run and uh, be a dual threat to run and pass. And um, there's more athleticism to that position than uh, than in the past. And I think it also means that these quarterbacks aren't going to last as long as the quarterbacks in the past. I, I think it's it'll be very hard for these quarterbacks to play 20 years or 23 years like Tom did because I don't think their bodies will be able to hold up um, because they do run and they get hit uh, and they get tackled. And um, Tom was the last of those. You know, he was a guy who he survived 23 years because he didn't run and he seldom got hit and he stayed in the pocket. And um, that that brand of football is now history. Your book was specifically about the, the dynasty at the Patriots. Um, and yet uh, there's a, an afterlife, a, a coda to his career, which helps to frank his greatness, even though we already knew he was great. I'm just interested in, in your perception now, somebody who obviously studied that era when himself and, and Belichick and Kraft were together. And and then he has this second act, which obviously American life not supposed to have a second act, or maybe it is. Um, what what What's your assessment now of the, the time at Tampa Bay as a matter of interest? Um. <laughs> that that is a very loaded question actually for for a lot of reasons um starting with the fact that um there's a, there's a lot of i think there's always going to be a lot of uh, uh dissatisfaction in new england over the fact that tom didn't finish his career as a patriot as he should have and if you look back at Tom's role model growing up, his idol was Joe Montana. And and Joe Montana to this day still regrets the fact and and is not happy about the fact that he didn't get to finish his career in San Francisco. He had a second act in Kansas City and uh, he didn't win a Super Bowl there like Tom did, but he went somewhere else. And there's just something that's not right about that. 
you know, when you spend your entire career and you build a dynasty on on your back to then go somewhere else. But I think those of us who know the dynamic in New England understand why Tom went there or why he left. And I think what's amazing about him is that he went to Tampa Bay and took a team that was dysfunctional and had no chance of even getting to a Super Bowl. And he took him there in one year and won. And I think it was an exclamation point on his achievements as a Patriot. And it, it demonstrated a lot about who he is as a competitor, uh, as a as a man, uh, as a football player, and as a leader. And nobody can take that away from him. Nobody can fault him. Um, <clears throat> even the second year in Tampa Bay, he took them to the brink of the Super Bowl. You know, they were really a couple plays away from being back in the Super Bowl. And so um, I just think Tom has done things that we'll probably never see done again. I, it's, it's hard for me to fathom uh, any quarterback, any football player, forget quarterback, any football player who's not a kicker playing to age 45 and, and not just being on the roster, but starting every game and leading, being like one of the best players in the league at age 45. I don't think we're going to see that again um in in the annals of football and so when tom brady has has now stepped off the stage we're, we're really watching a, a cultural figure who i think transcends football in many many ways uh, and I, I it's going to be very interesting to see how um the nfl deals with the icon that he is if if he just ends up in the commentary booth you know uh, for the main game every week for fox next season it feels um, I, it'll be weird, first off, and then I like I don't know. Should should, uh, should there be a new Mount Rushmore, or should the NFL have one? Where you know it's it's almost like oh, you're you're just the TV guy now. Yeah, I think you know what's really interesting to me. Have you seen um, Have you seen Top Gun Maverick? I actually haven't. No, not yet. Okay, so there is a the best scene to me. Everyone has their own favorite scene, but the best scene to me in the movie happens about halfway through when when Maverick goes to see Iceman, his competitor in Top Gun, you know, 40 years ago. And they're both older now. And, and Iceman has got, you know, throat cancer and he can't talk. And so he has to communicate on a keyboard and and Maverick's sitting there talking to him. And and um, it's like this late in life moment. And Iceman types on his laptop and he says, it's time to let go. And you hear him going pecking on the thing. And then Tom, not Tom, but it's Maverick. But I was thinking of Tom Brady. Maverick looks at him and goes, I don't know how. And to me, that's Tom Brady. That is Tom Brady. When it's time to let go, he doesn't know how. Because this is all he's done his whole life, and he's mastered it. He's mastered it in a way that no one else ever has, and probably no one else ever will. And I think when you get that great at something, I don't care what it is, it could be painting, but when you become the best in the world, and and fair to say, best ever in the world, it's really hard to let go. And I don't think there's anything that will give him the same satisfaction, not being in a booth, talking about it, 
and not selling a clothing line or health food products or producing movies, there's nothing else that will compare to the kind of satisfaction and drive and fulfillment that he got from driving a team down the field with 60 seconds to go and no timeouts and executing and scoring a touchdown. That I mean, that's just the facts of life. And I think that's where Tom is now. Um, is there any possibility he ends up in politics? I doubt it. I mean, it's interesting that you ask that because early, early in his career, like, I mean, way back when he'd won just two Super Bowls, <laughs> he was being described in major national publications in the United States as a future senator in Massachusetts, um, a guy who could run and, and, and one day become president of the United States. And I actually think he could have done that. Um, and at, at one, I don't mean he would have needed to retire earlier. I mean, if he wanted a career in politics, he could have definitely springboarded from athletics to that. Very few athletes are capable of pulling that off. Some have and done it really well. Bill Bradley comes to mind, a New York Knicks basketball player who became a prominent senator in the United States Senate. I think Tom had all the skills to do it. Actually, he still has all the skills to do it. I just don't think he's he is that guy now, and I don't see him ever going into politics. It's a lot of work. It's um, and that's the thing with all of these things that he might get into next. He he might be a brilliant head coach, but it's a lot of work, and you you don't get that job without first off being the quality control guy who is doing twenty hours a day looking at the. Uh, third string QB of the opposition the next week. Maybe maybe they might let Brady skip a few of those rungs in the ladder, but you can't cheat those. No, and I, I honestly think he would not make a good coach. Um, I think coaching would be really hard for him. I'm Look, he could walk on a football field with a bunch of kids and teach them and they would, you know, do anything for him. But if you're talking about coaching at the college or pro level, Guys that are as accomplished as Tom Brady have a really hard time doing that because they're perfectionists and they are intense. And when players don't meet their standard of performance or commitment, it's incredibly frustrating for them. That was one of his biggest frustrations as a player is when you have teammates at times who don't put in the level of commitment you do and who don't execute as precisely as you do he would get very angry and take it out on them. And he's not alone in that. Michael Jordan was that way. LeBron James is that way. That's the sign of a master. And masters usually don't make good coaches. And so I, I can't imagine Tom Brady wearing a headset on a sideline. I just can't even see that. Do you think he does end up in, in the commentary booth and that, that is where we'll see him next? I mean, he, he has signed a contract. And it's a big one. It's the biggest one in the history of sports broadcasting. It's 10 years. And he announced last week that he would start in the booth next, not this coming season. So not in the fall of 2023, but in the fall of 2024. That gives him a long runway to get prepared, but it also gives him a long runway to change his mind. And so I, I don't know if he will end up there ultimately. You know, Steve Young who is a Hall of Fame quarterback and was Tom Brady's other role model when he was a boy. Steve Young is, to me, 
the best example of a Hall of Fame quarterback becoming an exceptional voice in the broadcast booth. Steve Young has mastered the craft. I think everyone in America looks at him as like the ultimate uh, analyst for football broadcast. He's the best. And um, could Tom become that? Yeah, he he definitely has the capacity. He's smart enough and he knows the game well enough. And I think if he if he puts his mind to it like Steve did, there's no reason why he couldn't do that, too. But even Steve will tell you this doesn't do for him what being a quarterback did for him. It's just it's a different time in life. Yeah, actually, I listened to Steve Young. He does a, a, a half-hour radio show every week on the local San Francisco affiliate, and uh, he's he's amazing. But he he does talk about there's just a point where you get worn out and you reach the end and you can't do it anymore. And your mind is fine, but your body's like, I don't want to take these hits anymore. I've had enough. And that seemed to be the stage that we got to with Brady this year. Yeah, yeah. I think it was harder for Tom... I know how hard it was for Steve because I worked with Steve on his autobiography. I spent five years with him writing his book. And um, I love that book because of how honest Steve is just naturally honest anyways. But the honesty that bleeds through in that book is just like, I mean, it is sobering. And um, and that is a theme that he talks about. And I think what makes it harder for Tom, it's just that Tom played even longer than Steve and Joe and any of the other guys. I mean, I think the longer you do what these guys do, the harder and harder it gets to leave the stage. And that's why I look at Tom Brady and LeBron James as two guys. We may not see two other athletes like them, not only in their greatness, but just in their longevity. It's so uh, unheard of for a basketball player and a football player to be at the peak of their performance for over for 20 years. It's like that, that's a light, that is an eternity in sports. And so um, I, I think we're watching, like we just watched the end of an incredible era with Tom and we're, we're watching the, you know, the final scenes with LeBron. The, the, um, our, our tenuous enough hook for this piece was that it's actually 21 years since the Super Bowl where Tom Brady wins his um, his first Super Bowl and the halftime show was actually U2 and it's the post 9-11 Super Bowl so obviously like this is a big moment in um, American in Americana if I can phrase it that way um, when Bono opens his jacket and inside it is the, the stars and stripes at halftime and um, apparently there was no consideration given to anybody else other than you two doing that halftime show. I don't know how true that is now, but certainly that's what the the uh, the mythology around the moment would have you believe. Um, and I wondered, did, did, do you have any recollection of that? Did any of that factor into any of the research around the, the book that you did? Absolutely. I have a whole chapter about you two because that, well, first of all, um, I have to say the, the bias for me <laughs> The wonderful thing about writing a book is you get to you have full editorial control over what goes in. It's like having final cut in a movie. And I am. I can say I'm one of the biggest YouTube fans in America. I, it's just that is the band that I grew up on. I got my driver's license and the first day I drove a car by myself. That's what I listened to. I mean, when those are the moments that's like it's the soundtrack of my youth. 
And so uh, when I was writing the dynasty, there was no way in the world I was going to write that Super Bowl chapter and not write about you, too. And I was fortunate to get um, access to the raw video footage that NFL films and the National Football League controls. But it's the footage of U2's. Um, they did a press conference at the Superdome in New Orleans uh, three days, three or four days before the Super Bowl. And um, what's interesting about it is that week there was a huge controversy and debate over which quarterback was going to start for the Patriots. Would it be Tom Brady or Drew Bledsoe? And if you recall, that year, Drew Bledsoe at the beginning of the year was the $100 million superstar quarterback, but he suffered a life-threatening injury in the second game of the season, the first game that was played after 9-11. And an artery in his chest ruptured, and he almost bled to death. And so by default, Tom Brady became the quarterback, and played for a good part of that season until Drew recovered from the injury and came back. And when he came back, everyone in the football world just assumed he would get his job back. And Bill Belichick didn't give him his job back. He stuck with this kid, Tom Brady, which really, as you can imagine, upset Bledsoe. And Brady carried the team all the way to the, through the playoffs, but in the in the championship game, that decided who went to the Super Bowl, Brady got hurt. And he he his ankle got twisted like a pretzel. And it happened early in the game. So Drew Bledsoe came in and won the game. And that game is what actually put them in the Super Bowl. So now there was a controversy. Who do you start now? And a lot of people thought he would start Drew because Tom's ankle was, you know, just like Patrick Mahomes this week, Tom's ankle was was pretty compromised and blood and uh, coach Belichick wouldn't answer. So all week long, everybody was trying to figure out who it was going to be. And the great story about you too, is that Bono and the edge were in the green room waiting to do their press conference and in walked the son of the owner of the Patriots, Jonathan Kraft. He was one of probably three people who knew that Bill had made his choice and it was going to be Tom. And Jonathan Kraft was such a huge fan of U2. He grew up going to all their concerts. When Bono asked him who's going to start, Jonathan, I got her judgment. He couldn't help him. So, so now Bono, oh, it's going to be Tom. <laughs> so... And they're not supposed to know that. Then they walk out to do the press conference. And of course, the first thing the media asks is about the controversy. And Bono starts talking like he knows. And poor Jonathan Kraft is off to the sideline, sweating bullets, thinking, oh, no, he's going to spill the beans. This is all true. And it's all on video. And um, so I describe that whole scene in the book because it, to me, it's one of the best scenes in the dynasty. And Bono takes you right to the edge of the cliff, but he doesn't give it away. He doesn't say who it is, although he knows who it doesn't say. And then the edge takes the microphone and starts saying why he thinks Bledsoe is better than Tom. And it's quite hilarious. So yes, it's in there. And I can tell you the story about why U2 was chosen is not mythical. Um, prior to 9-11, the league didn't know who they were going to use for the halftime entertainment. And they were trying to sort that out. And they had 
multiple recording artists that they were considering. I don't think U2 was one of them. Then 9-11 happened. And right after 9-11 happened, uh, U2 did a concert at Madison Square Garden in New York. And that concert was the concert where Bono brought New York City firemen, policemen, and rescue workers on stage during the concert. And they're all up there with the band. And behind them is when U2, for the first time, scrolled the names of all the people who died in 9-11. It was a risky decision for the band to do that in New York. There was not a on whether they should do it. The band, a bad idea. Bono, being the leader and the strong-minded one, insisted on it, and they did it. Here's why it's interesting for the Super Bowl. In the audience that night was a guy who worked for the National Football League and was a senior executive. He was in the audience, and when that happened, he went into work the next day, and he told all of his colleagues at the league office that he'd been at the U2 show at Madison Square Garden last night, and he said... When the band rolled those names down, he said, you could hear people in the audience going, there's my brother. That's my sister. And he said people were crying. And he said it was like the most emotional thing he ever We have to get for the Super Bowl. This is who we have to have. That's the true story. It's pretty amazing because it's obviously, <clears throat> it's obviously such a, an emotional moment when you know, there there probably haven't been that many moments where the whole country is again watching. You know, the the Super Bowl day is such a famous. It's around the world. Everybody goes knows that on Super Bowl Sunday, America stops and and they sit and they watch the game. And this would have been the first mass moment of joy where Americans would have been huddled around the TV in the aftermath of uh, the terror attacks. So I can see how you want to make sure when you're the NFL that you get that decision right and that you find a band with the emotional heft to be able to pull it off. It it will, you know, every five or six years or so, um, there's a performance at halftime that people say, oh, that might be the best one we've ever had. I think most people in America know the best Super Bowl performance that has ever happened is the U2 performance after 9-11. It, it's because it's, it's not entertaining. This, the Super Bowl halftime shows are spectacles by design. They're supposed to be spectacles. We've had everybody from the Rolling Stones to Bruce Springsteen. We've had everybody. U2 was different. And it was different because of the moment. And so when they sing where the streets have no names and those names are coming down, like you, th- there's never going to be a halftime show like that again. And there's sh- hopefully there's never a reason for there to be a halftime show like that again. That's why that to me stands alone and always will stand alone as the most significant and best Super Bowl halftime performance ever. Uh, and it was a band from Ireland. There you go. And and that was our, I, I thought it was a tenuous hook. It turned out it wasn't tenuous at all. I know you have a new book about LeBron coming out, but I've got to ask you, when's your YouTube book coming out if you're that big a fan? Um, it, my, I, I can't tell you how much I would love to write that book. Um, I, I mean, honestly, I've been a writer for 25 years and, um, that book 
the unwritten book is the one that's in my office. I have a huge file that I've kept since I was 16. And um, for me would be one day write that book. Okay, right. Well, you'll have to do a lot of research when you come over to Dublin. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, bringing you around some of the places that they would have frequented. What's the crack with the LeBron book? When's that out? The LeBron book comes out April 11th, so it's about, I don't know, eight weeks away. Um, it comes out the same week that the basketball playoffs begin in the United States. Um, I am <laughs> the only word I can come up with is it's going to have Rick about someone like LeBron. Um, I. <laughs> the amount of uh, admiration that I developed over the course of five years working on that story. Um, I'll use the word sobering again, because it was. Um, it, it is very much a Charles Dickens kind of story. And um, it, it's got a lot of Dickens in it. It just, especially the origin story. Um, and and I love Dickens, and I thought of Dickens a lot. And some of Dickens' characters um, when I was writing the early, the early chapters. And so uh, I can't afford to come out. Um, and for people in other countries outside America to read it, um, the rights to the book have already been sold in like 20 countries, including Ireland. And so um, I'm super excited about people in the UK getting their hands on it. Um, LeBron's a worldwide figure. He's not, to me, he's not an American figure. He's a worldwide figure. And, um, you know, he's probably the most popular athlete in the country of China, the most populated country in the world. So uh, I, I'm really excited about it. Well, listen, I can't wait to talk to you about that. When we get the opportunity, we'd love to have you back on talking about that. Enjoy the Super Bowl. I don't know if you've got an inkling about who's going to win it one way or another, or if, if you mind no. one way or another. <laughs> I, I don't. I, this It's nice to have a game to just sit back and enjoy it and watch it, and I will, but I don't have a dog in the fight, so I, I don't care who wins. <laughs> that was sensational stuff, Jeff. Thanks so much for sharing time with us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure.